0: Well, if your chest pain now is gone, there's really no point in doing another EKG because
1: what's it going to show? Right from the words of God, one EKG begets a second EKG.
2: Nobody's relying on stress tests at all anymore. In fact, I, I think there's a very good case to be made. If we couldn't bill for them, we
0: wouldn't be doing them. Hey Rick, we got it here. This is the August issue of our Risk Management Monthly 2017. I've got on the line with me the Skype line. I've got yeah, you know the Greg. You you, you, you got to expect him. But, but 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 we have a very special guest. He's a relatively obscure, little known emergency physician. <laughs> Another no name, right in the business. somehow worked his way up the ladder at the University of Maryland to become a full professor. You know like, what next? And the vice chair of the emergency department, you probably never heard of this guy. I'm on with you. <laughs> Dr. Cardiology, the, the man who tells us everything we need to know about the ticking thing in our chest, he is a truly an expert, uh, and we're really proud to have him uh, on with us because Amo does... Um, some uh risk management re- related work to cardiology th- does uh, some testifying, has some great cases for us, and um that's where we're gonna go with this uh, this one this uh, this month. Uh, Amel taught me everything I know about Brugatha's syndrome. No, 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 I taught you uh, about bucata syndrome.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah, no, I thought we'd change the name to Bucata syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. that's oh,
0: good. Exactly.
2: Yeah, and by the way, Amel last year at uh up on Mackinac Island at the Grand Hotel gave the Gregory L Henry lecture and did you, I did, did you die no no. You, I <laughs> noticed I didn't say memorial lecture <laughs> it's the Gregory L Henry lecture and he did a wonderful job and I thank him again for his uh,
1: great presentation Well, thanks Greg thanks Rick and Greg that uh, lecture at Mackinac Island was uh, a, a real, real honor. But I have to say, I've been a subscriber to Risk Management Monthly since the very beginning, and this is a dream come true. I can... <laughs> <laughs> like a nightmare, yes. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I can take this off my bucket list now.
2: Right, so, right.
1: Well, you thanks. Can die, you could
2: die a happy man now. Exactly.
1: Right. So yeah. it's, it's really great to be here. Uh, this is a lot of fun. And um, as you mentioned, I've developed a strong interest over the years in emergency cardiology and also in risk management. And Greg, I have to thank you for that. When I was a year out of residency, I drove from Baltimore back to Philadelphia to attend a conference that you and Neil Little put on. Yes. And I don't know if you still do those, but it was honestly, it was one of the very best, I think it was a two-day conference and just yes. a fantastic conference. And it really opened up my eyes to not only the the legal uh, field and everything that we face, in medical-legal uh, disasters, but also just it really improved my practice a lot and so that really got me started on this and over the past I guess 15 years I've been doing uh, increasing numbers of med mal reviews and the majority are focused on uh, emergency cardiology and so this is um I guess in many ways this you're, you guys are giving me an opportunity to get on my soapbox and talk about things that I have seen and wish people would know about in order to avoid the malpractice in emergency cardiology. So this is fantastic. So thank well, you. Well,
2: you can imagine, amo on this show, uh, we, we never get on our soapbox. <laughs> you think <laughs> like that, and you've heard. But thanks for mentioning that course. I had plenty of people come up and say, you know, if there's one thing I was gonna require, every resident ought to have that course, that two days. The day they start the residency, And the day they're leaving the program, because uh, because actually you only see certain diseases, you know, once or twice in your life. You interact with patients 25, 30 times a day and the uh, the chance to make them unhappy (laughs) are endless. They really are.
1: Yeah. So I've listed a handful of things probably about eight or nine different areas which the majority of emergency cardiology cases i've seen fall and so i I guess i'll just start going through them and and you guys can throw out some comments also based on on your years of experience also because i'm sure you've seen many similar cases and may want to elaborate but i'm i'm going to start with my area of particular interest and that's the ekg or ecg for those people outside the u.s and who are not german uh, yeah. so, so I think, um, you know, I remember reading a long time ago that about 25 to 50 percent of malpractice cases and misdiagnoses center on uh, EKG misinterpretation. And I, I couldn't believe that that was true. But I have to tell you that based on my experience, that is absolutely positively true. Uh, anywhere from probably 25 to 50 percent of the cases that I see end up you know falling on a misinterpreted ekg and you figure this is a basic test we all learn about the ekg interpretation of residency so why in the world is this happening and i i think there's three large reasons for that number one even though every one of us is taught to not rely on that damn computer uh, i think we do when things are really busy and the ekgs are flying at you left and right you look at the interpretation at the top and there's definitely an over-reliance on looking at what the machine says. And the machine, I always joke that the EKG computer programs are programmed by plaintiff attorneys. <laughs> they want you to miss. They, they want you to screw up. And, and so you have to resist that. Um, they oftentimes will give you this nonspecific interpretation. And it's really important to remember that the term nonspecific is, does not mean normal uh, the way the computers are generally programmed is that if you don't have, for example, ST elevation of at least a millimeter elevated or depressed, the computer will call it non-specific. So you can have ST depression of 0.99 millimeters in V123456. The person's having an anterior big STEMI, and if it's not 1.0 millimeters or more, your computer will call it non-specific. And so you can't rely on the nonspecific interpretation. You really, really have to scrutinize that 12 lead. And I've I've seen at least a half dozen cases where patients were thought to have not much, but then you go back to the 12 lead and you clearly see anywhere between a half to a full millimeter of ST depression in three or four contiguous leads or ST elevation. And if it's not a full millimeter, your computer's not going to help you out. Amo, um, oh,
2: I've uh, seen <clears throat> this question asked probably 200 times at deposition. Doctor, it doesn't say normal EKG, does it? And of course, the docs always respond by saying, well, we see nonspecific STT wave changes on everybody. He said, I couldn't, if I, if I uh, had to work up everybody who had that, You know, I wouldn't have time for anything else, but that's the favorite plaintiff question. It doesn't say normal, does it, doctor?
0: You know, the other thing about that, I think, is that um, are we willing to go to the point where we would say uh, nonspecific is not normal and therefore is abnormal? that a non-specific reading is an abnormal reading on the EKG. That doesn't mean you're abnormal. It doesn't mean the patient's abnormal, but it means that the EKG is abnormal. Or do you, do we want to continue to have nonspecific being some kind of gray zone transition between normal and abnormal? I mean, I've heard people say, nope, it's abnormal.
1: Yeah. What do you think? It's a good question. And, and I, I certainly agree that you can't work up in detail every last ekg that says non specific but uh, you know when you see non specific you really need to scrutinize the 12 lead and if you see that st depression of 3 quarters of a millimeter in multiple contiguous leads then that's not necessarily a gray zone that's something that you need to worry about and that kind of leads to the, the next point uh, that I'm, I was going to talk about and that is you've got to get an old ekg when you see something that's not normal just take the extra few minutes and find an old EKG in the system. And you know what? If if they had that non-specific junk five years ago or six months ago, then yeah, I'm not going to worry about it too much. But sometimes getting that old EKG can make all the difference. And you see that those changes are new, and and then they do warrant working up the patient a little bit more. Uh, so so again, it is in some ways a gray zone, but that gray zone can come back and bite you if you're not really scrutinizing it, you're not correlating it with the symptoms, and you're not comparing that to an old EKG as well. Worse than that,
2: uh, um, what they can do is make you look bad. So, doctor, you cared so little for this patient that even though an old EKG was available, you just didn't have the time,
0: did you? Yeah, that's the point I was going to make. Uh, it, you could certainly be made to look bad if you uh, had access or reasonable access, <coughs> and uh, you chose not to avail yourself of that uh, uh, additional help to ferret out what this EKG
1: means. Yeah, uh, the the other thing that I wanted to bring up about the EKG, two, two more points. Number one is that I think that. Uh, There may be premature closure with regards to the EKG when somebody has very atypical signs or symptoms, or what I'm seeing more often is that they have negative troponins. And when people have atypical signs and symptoms and or negative troponins, people have already in their mind decided that they're not going to worry about the patient and they don't scrutinize the 12-lead ECG. And we'll talk more about troponins a little bit later, but whether the patient has classic or atypical signs and symptoms, whether the patient's got – a negative troponin or not you you've got to scrutinize that 12 lead ecg it's an objective piece of information sitting there that you've got to really really look at and again greg has said in the past that if you're going to get a test you need to do something with it otherwise don't get the test in the first place so if you're going to get the 12 lead ecg you've got to really really take a good close look at it and and scrutinize that 12 lead and not prematurely obviate your concerns of the twelve lead, because you've already decided their symptoms are not concerning. Yeah,
2: you know, the white, uh, the the EKG can be the white blood count <laughs> of the heart. Uh, what it is is, I see all kinds of people who get a white blood count and it's twelve thousand. They say, ah, we see that a lot. Well, then why did you get the test, fool? <laughs> we have no idea why why you would want to, to know that count if it doesn't mean anything. I think I think to a very great degree, EKGs are that way. Uh, If you need it, you got to pay attention and answer the question, what does this mean?
0: Right. Well, you know, the other thing I see is um, we've had some papers in the EMA database that have looked at um, physicians, I think think particularly emergency physicians' ability to read EKGs. And to tell you the truth, they didn't come out so hot. Um, It seems like across the board, there is some... uh, um, need for tuning up physician's ability to read EKGs, particularly in the setting of uh, potential ischemic chest pain. And uh, maybe there's, uh, I'm, uh, I think you do some instructions or classes or those kinds of things, because I can tell you that in in residencies, I think there's a substantial amount of variability regarding the instruction that people have and the practice that they have In reading EKGs in uh, settings where there are experts who are also reading them who can help you and guide you and who you can ask questions of. I was very fortunate when we did our residency that we would be sent to the cardiology department and they would have huge stacks of them that they were reading every day. And so we read thousands of EKGs over our tenure as residents. And I think our experience was particularly good, but I don't know that that's the case with everybody. And I think that given this, really important element this is probably the most important element you're going to run into um maybe there's a way that we all need to brush up a bit
1: yeah i think everybody needs to get better at it and i i think emergency medicine residencies are getting better at it but it, it unfortunately it's a low-tech type of thing and people nowadays are much more interested in the high-tech stuff the uh, ultrasound bedside ultrasound echo not to take anything away from bedside ultrasound but you can't forget the basics. And just like Greg said, if you're going to get a test, you've got to really scrutinize it. Otherwise, don't get the test at all. And, and honestly, I've seen probably three cases I can think of which, in which if the EKG had not been obtained, I think it would have been very defensible. But the EKG was obtained and it was missed. And even though the presentation was atypical, once you've got that EKG sitting there clearly abnormal, it becomes very difficult to defend because that's your objective piece of information that's tough to argue against. And then the, the last point about the EKG I will bring up is a failure to get repeat EKGs when people have ongoing symptoms. That's been brought up in a handful of cases. And just a reminder, the, the ACC/AHA guidelines on non-STEMI say that we're supposed to be getting serial EKGs on patients If we have significant concern, now, you know, if somebody's got squirrely pain, I'm not advocating that you get serial EKGs. If somebody's got no ongoing pain, I don't think you necessarily need to get a repeat EKG. But if somebody has concerning symptoms and they have ongoing pain, the guidelines specifically say that you should be getting repeat EKGs, they they go a bit over the board. And say probably 15 to 30 minutes, every 15 to 30 minutes, and that might be excessive. But I think at least get one or two more EKGs mm. over the next hour or two, because you might be surprised that you see something evolving and you have an opportunity to really make a big difference there. Don't just settle for one EKG. And uh, I'm, I have a case right now sitting in front of me in which an EKG was obtained, uh, and the next EKG was obtained about Eight or nine hours later, the patient had symptoms the entire time. Of course, the first EKG was not that remarkable, but the second EKG is, you know, big-time STEMI with a third-degree heart block, and the question is, the person has persistent symptoms all those hours, why didn't you get an EKG much, much earlier, and you would have probably been able to preserve a lot more myocardium. So, again, the EKG, I would say, is a piece of paper and ink. It's a cheap test. It's rapid, reliable, reproducible. It can be done no matter how sick someone is at the bedside. Just get the repeat EKG. The repeat EKG is not showing any changes, fine. But you may be surprised that you make a, a life saving diagnosis there.
0: Regarding that pesky EMA database, we had a paper. I don't know if you remember it, where they had a, the premise being well, if you're just pain now is gone. There's really no point in doing another EKG because what's it going to show? And the fact of the matter is, is that in this paper, at least, they found that that was not a good way to determine the value of a subsequent EKG. And it would suggest, however, that they, therefore, people have a very, very low uh, a threshold for getting uh, a second EKG, even in people who are uh, asymptomatic to assure that they re, their EKG re, has remained so because in this paper, at least, there was a substantial number of people who had surprises on their EKGs, their subsequent one, even though they were asymptomatic. Have uh, any thoughts about that?
1: No, I, I would never argue with uh, somebody suggesting getting repeat EKGs, even if they're asymptomatic, You know, and, and that's something that I learned from another very obscure emergency physician by the name of Corey Slovis, <laughs> Who frequently would utter the phrase "One EKG begets a second EKG"? Get cereals. I asked him one time where he heard that. He swears he read that in the Bible somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 right from the words of God, one EKG begets a second EKG. Well, what this goes back to is uh, Pat
2: Crosscarry's work about premature closure of thinking which means we need to repeat the neuro exam on people who have neurologic complaints. We need to uh, do a lot of those things because disease does change with time. And to think that that one, after all, what does it take you to get an EKG now? 10 seconds or something like that is is what we get. Um, Repeat examinations, whether it's an EKG or actual physical exams are not a bad thing.
1: Absolutely. And I think in the EMA database, Rick, you had also reviewed a paper which said that if you take a look in this database of all STEMIs, about 11% or maybe a bit more, 11% of all STEMIs were diagnosed on the second or third EKG and not even on the first. And so the repeat EKG was the diagnostic STEMI EKG. Had they not done that, they would have been missing an opportunity to reperfuse uh, more than 10, 15% of their STEMIs. Very good. All right, so enough about EKGs. The next probably uh, most common thing that I'm seeing is uh, misdiagnosis of reflux. Uh, Again, something that I probably learned at that course that you and Neil Little did, but reflux is the most common misdiagnosis sitting on the chart of a malpractice case for missed acute coronary syndrome or missed MI. Reflux is very common. And and I think, Greg, you had said that before you ever write reflux on the chart of a patient you're about to send home, you should just slap yourself or, or maybe you should uh, – invent a pen that just reaches up and slaps the physician. Anytime they write reflex, (laughs) something like that. Yes,
2: exactly. You remember the course too well. Yes. Uh, You'll remember that uh, in the movie, Dr. Strangelove, Dr. Strangelove had a hand. He only had a hand that he couldn't stop from being a Nazi and he had to keep pulling it down because it kept reminding him. And I I think that um, when you write certain words on charts, just think about all those damn lawsuits that have happened here, and uh, I I can still remember as a medical student, uh, a medicine resident telling me, ah, give them a little, uh, give them a little antacid, and if they get better, they're okay. Uh, I would point out that no one's ever published a paper that says your response to either an antacid or to a nitroglycerin tablet rules in or rules out. Uh, ischemic heart disease.
1: Yeah, so I I actually researched this a little bit, and I'm going to read you some statistics that I found in the cardiology literature, not even the EM or risk management literature, but these are out of cardiology journals over the past several decades. So studies have found that up to 50% of patients with proven MI will present reporting an increase in belching. Uh, 20% of patients with proven ACS Use the words burning or indigestion when describing their pain rather than the classic chest squeezing or tightness or elephant on my chest. Uh, at least 15 percent, some studies say much higher than that, 15 percent of patients with proven MIs will report partial or complete relief of their pain with acids. And also there's one large European study which reported that 8% of patients that ruled in for an MI had onset of their MI symptoms while eating a meal. And then there's uh, GI studies which have indicated that true gastroesophageal reflux disease and peptic ulcer disease is more prevalent in patients with known coronary disease. So these are all factors that are working against us, making us want to diagnose reflux. And it, it can be a very difficult diagnosis because patients with MI, especially I think inferior wall MI, will oftentimes present with reflux type of symptoms. And The theory is that maybe it's because inferior MIs irritate the diaphragm and produce some reflux type of symptoms. But, uh, again, whenever you write reflux on the chart of somebody with chest pain, you've got to think twice. Think three times before you send that person home and, and think about these statistics and make sure you're not missing one of these atypical presentations. It's very, very common.
2: Well, see, I don't mind that you send them home or you admit them. Just don't use the response to an antacid or to a nitroglycerin as any kind of scientific test that you've decided what this patient has. And I'm sure that all of us early on in the past thought, thought that that was the way to go. It's not. I uh, Rick, do I have time to tell my elephant sitting on your chest story? Uh, the, I, did o- I only had in my career one guy who had actually had an elephant sit on his chest ever. So when he had his chest pain, I had to ask the question, (laughs) does this feel like the elephant sitting on your chest? Well, he was a professor of mechanical engineering at the university of Michigan who was Indian. And as a boy, he was brought up as a Mahoot that these, uh, those are little boys who are raised with an elephant and, and train them. And I said, and and an elephant had a little baby elephant had rolled on his chest I said, "Is this like the elephant?" And he says, "Oh no!" He says, "Elephant, much worse." And I said, "Oh my God! Here's the one guy I could, I could, I could use in my in my series of one." And he didn't confirm what I thought. So what <laughs> can I say? <laughs> classic, classic story. That classic, classic story. Yeah.
1: So, uh, moving forward, uh, the next couple of things have to do with atypical presentations and also young patients. You know, we, we've all learned the classic Framingham risk factors. And when I was in medical school, I learned that you have to be a 65-year-old woman or a 55-year-old man to have a heart attack. And then when I got to residency, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to be conservative. I'm going to lower the age to 45. And then I got out of residency and I thought I'm going to be even more conservative. And I lowered the age of concern to 35. And, and now I don't know what the lowest ages for patients to have a heart attack. Um, when I go to conferences, I oftentimes ask the audience, how many of you have seen patients in their 20s who have had non-cocaine, non-crazy congenital problems, but true stemmies?" And just about everybody in the audience who's been out in practice for at least 10 years has seen someone in their 20s. And in almost every audience, there is someone who's seen teenagers, and that's becoming more and more common, especially with our god-awful Western diets. Uh, in every first world country, diets are deteriorating, and we are seeing more even teenagers with significant cardiac disease. Uh, and um, some of you may remember, maybe about eight years ago, there was a national debate that was staged in the pediatrics and peds cardiology community about whether we as a society should be routinely starting kids on statins. That is how bad, I mean, honestly, that's how bad things have become. The peds cardiology community kind of pushed back a little bit and said, well, it's probably a little bit too early. Yet, if you look in the literature, statins are prescribed for hundreds of thousands of kids in the United States already. And the Peds Cardiology community is predicting that in the coming decade, we're we're going to be seeing more teenagers with true atherosclerotic MIs than ever before, just because of how bad the diets have become. So there is no lower limit of age. And so for the people out there listening, please don't ever, ever rule out cardiac disease or ACS as a concern just because you have a patient uh, who is in their 20s, because they're out there and, and they're very, very prevalent.
2: I, you know I what, hate to tell you this, but uh, Rick is just on his way when we're done with this to get an in and out Burger. But <laughs> we, 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 we will suppress that discussion at this no, time.
0: No, no, no. I, I switched over. I, I, it'll be a k- kielbasa sandwich that I uh, got from... Uh, Philadelphia, when I was back there uh, about a month ago, uh, I, I I bought about 30 feet of it. It's in my freezer. <laughs> now, I'm gradually <laughs> going
1: through it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, wash it down with the statin, right. I guess. So on, on a related note, we'll, we'll kind of switch over and talk a little bit more about women. Women are also a group of patients that we were, at least I was taught that you don't need to be as worried about unless it's, you know, a 50-, 60-year-old woman. And what I would say is that in the, I don't know, 50 or 60 cases of missed ACS that I've seen now, the clear majority of missed ACS cases that I've seen in malpractice cases are relatively young women, women in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s. And they just oftentimes are underappreciated in terms of their risk. And the other problem here is that they oftentimes, it's been well documented in every society that women tend to present with more atypical presentations. They have more atypical locations of pain. For example, they may present with isolated shoulder or arm pain rather than chest pain, isolated neck pain, and so on. They may more commonly present with painless presentations. It's definitely more common in women to present with painless presentations compared to men. It may be isolated shortness of breath. Uh, In older women, malaise and sleep disturbance become very, very common. In fact, one of the LLSA articles from a handful of years ago talked about atypical presentations in women and malaise and uh, fatigue for no good reason was a very common presentation in women that are having acute coronary syndrome, you know, mom gets up and, you know, mom normally is real active, but this morning she just didn't have enough energy to get out of the bed or patient comes in and says, you know, I don't know why, but over the past few days, I've been just feeling really wiped out and you can't come up with a good reason for it. You know what? Just just check a 12 lead. I'm not saying you activate the cath lab or even send a troponin, but for those patients, just check a 12 lead and you may be surprised at, at what you find. By the way, the smoking
2: patterns in the United States have changed over the last 50 years. Uh, What you find is there's there's fewer men and young men smoking and more smoking amongst women. So there may be the, the risk factors may be real. It just so happens they're happening in women more than men at this point in time.
1: Yeah, that definitely may be true. There was an interesting Canadian study which talked about all of this stuff also, and another interesting point this Canadian study brought up is that women tend to present with more symptoms. So men that are having heart attacks may present with just chest pain and diaphoresis, or maybe just chest pain and shortness of breath or vomiting. Women oftentimes will present with some vague chest ache and some shortness of breath and some malaise and some nausea and, uh, you know, the, the... The group of all of these symptoms, interestingly, has oftentimes led physicians to misdiagnose the patient as having flu. Uh, So because women have more symptoms, ironically, it leads to more common misdiagnoses as things like flu as well uh so very very interesting thing and and this has been published in the cardiology literature for the past several decades it's also been reproduced in many many other countries that have studied this there is uh, also a gender bias that we have against working up <laughs> women there're studies that have shown that women are more likely to have false negative stress tests as well and some people Believe that that's probably related to the fact that women more often have single vessel disease, whereas men more often have multi vessel disease. But the bottom line is that women's EKGs may be more subtle, their stress test results may be more subtle or normal. And very important point also don't ever rely on a negative recent stress test, especially in women, because they oftentimes are false negatives.
2: Amel, nobody's relying on stress tests at all anymore. In fact, I, th- I think there's a very good case to be made uh, if if we if we couldn't bill for them, we wouldn't be doing them. Uh, it, it, it's not really the definitive test uh, that we thought it was in in the uh, beginnings. And I predict
0: in the next five years they disappear. Well, listen, can we? briefly diverge uh, diverge and talk a little bit about um, these stress tests, because um, what Greg is talking about, I think, is really uh, uh, very pertinent here. You hear people all the time saying, well, we're going to send you home, but we want to get a stress test in the next day or two. And I think even the Heart Association was okay with trying to get rapid evaluations of uh, these chest pains that turn out to be, we don't think they're going to be much, but by the way, we're still going to do a stress test. And and how do we feel about a test um, looking at a potentially important diagnosis, coronary artery disease, which is um, not particularly uh, sensitive in picking up the disease that we're interested
1: in? Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Almo Well, uh, there's... A couple of different points here. Number one, getting stress tests on asymptomatic patients as an outpatient is uh, very poor yield and, and low utility. Um, second point is that relying on an old stress test when somebody comes in with new symptoms can be dangerous as well because now they're coming in with brand new symptoms and they need to be worked up uh, de novo. If, on the other hand, a patient comes in with acute symptoms and you do a quick rule out and then send them for a stress test, in that scenario, the stress test is pretty good if it's, say, a nuclear medicine stress test or a stress echo. So in the acute setting, getting a good quality stress test is pretty good at telling you that what they presented with today is probably not an acute coronary syndrome, but The next time they present, especially if they present the next time with some type of change in their symptoms, you can't go back and rely on the previous one. I I guess the analogy is if somebody comes into the emergency department with acute chest pain and someone says to you, well, we don't need to get an EKG because a month ago their EKG was normal. Well, that's silly. We would never do that. And I I think it it would be similar to saying a person comes in with acute chest pain or cardiopulmonary complaints now. And we don't need to work them up because a month ago their workup was negative. That doesn't make any sense either. So they will need a new new workup. And then the alternative, if you don't want to send them for cath, which nobody wants to do uh, a cath unless they've already ruled in, the alternative is the coronary CTA which that opens up a, a whole new discussion about the utility of the coronary CTA. But, but if you do get a negative coronary CTA, then that does appear to have a pretty good prognostic value in the acutely symptomatic patient.
0: Can we uh, t- uh, uh, postpone a little bit of this towards the end? But uh, um, the idea of the stress test kind of thing, uh, the literature says it's like 70% percent sensitive and i think that whenever we say stress test i think that people think of you know you just walk in a treadmill and that's the stress test but really what you did uh Amal, is basically take it to another test it's a stress test under the influence of we're going to see what the perfusion of your heart is like during this test by doing some radionuclei test uh, or the or the like and that is a different kind that is a different test that's a te- uh- that's beyond a stress test that's and and those tests may have something like an eighty eight percent thereabouts uh sensitivity and and they're they're better they're certainly not hundred percent but I think the idea of just doing a garden variety stress test i don't i don't think that's what we're talking about
1: anymore yeah absolutely the the treadmill stress test by itself is certainly on its way out okay so we've We've talked a bit about some atypical presentations. We've talked about women. The the one other point that I wanted to make about atypical presentations has to do with upper abdominal pain. And I think in the past year, year and a half or so, I've actually seen three cases of patients in the MedMal arena who presented with upper abdominal pain, but without significant tenderness. And nobody thought about the possibility of cardiac Uh, problems as the cause of upper abdominal pain. So it's just a simple point to make, simple reminder. Please remember the diaphragm is not a concrete wall, right? Anything in the belly can cause chest pain. Anything in the chest can cause upper abdominal pain. So when your patient comes in with upper abdominal pain, if it's not really reproducible, then consider the possibility of a cardiopulmonary complaint. And I'm sure all of us have seen people with PEs present with upper abdominal pain, uh, pneumonia present with upper abdominal pain and cardiac problems can certainly present with upper abdominal pain. So think about at least just checking an EKG if the patient has upper abdominal pain, but no reproducible tenderness there. Yeah. Um, the next thing that I had on my list has to do with the troponins. Now, it's, it certainly has become a troponin world. And unfortunately, because of that, Uh, I have found that a lot of people are really over-relying on troponins. They get one or two troponins on the chart, and if they're negative, they have no concerns about the patient any longer. Uh, In fact, I think the vast majority of MedMal cases for missed ACS I've seen have had negative troponins on the chart, and the patient got discharged home and had an adverse outcome. and Nobody really Bothered scrutinizing the HPI or the EKG just because they so thoroughly relied on negative troponins. So remember, troponins are not perfect. Even though they're getting better and better and better, they are still not perfect. And the guidelines and all the recent ACCHA papers are trying to remind us that are trying to remind us of that. And they consistently talk about this concept of biomarker negative ACS, which Back in the day, we used to call that unstable angina, right? Um, so <laughs> unstable angina is still out there. You can still have acute coronary syndrome with negative troponins, and the patient goes out and dies. So, you know, again, troponins are getting better, but they are still not perfect. You still need to worry about the HPI and, and the 12 EKG.
2: You know, I we we don't want to put you under duress here, Amol, but... Uh... Regular troponins versus uh, high-efficiency troponins versus this or that. Are you seeing that as a part of these lawsuits?
1: Uh, Well, the most highly sensitive troponins that have already been introduced in Europe and Southeast Asia and Canada just got approved in the U.S. maybe about six months ago. But I don't think that they have been incorporated uh, widespread, if at all. I I think they're they're still – uh, kind of making their way through different systems. We don't have the most highly sensitive troponin yet. We have a pretty sensitive troponin. Most everybody out there has a pretty sensitive troponin. But I, I haven't seen that brought up in any cases thus far about what type of troponin you have. Um, once these most highly sensitive troponins Uh, get introduced into clinical practice, I think the number of patients with biomarker negative ACS will decrease, but it still will not drop to zero. I I think it's actually a a, a two-edged sword, Uh, and I'm not looking forward to the day that we get those highly sensitive troponins because they are positive in everyone. I mean, the three of us probably have positive troponins sitting here, and uh, troponins – Will start turning positive a couple of days before the patient has an event. is it's, it's gotten way way oversensitive. Well, that's that's this sensitivity specificity question.
2: Always, do you want to overcall it or undercall it? Uh, as your insurance carrier, I guess you want it to overcall the disease. Uh, if you're Jerry Hoffman, you want to undercall it. Uh, but it's it's just a how you look at it. What are you willing to, to deal with? the long-term effects of having a positive troponin, because sending you off to have a balloon is not necessarily a benign procedure.
1: Yeah. So the way things are right now, even with the current generation of troponins, they are still so sensitive that if we have a patient with a non-STEMI EKG, and some you know some concerning but not a slam dunk type of uh, history of present illness if we get a positive troponin slightly elevated troponin we call cardiology and you know 10 15 years ago somebody had even a slight bump in troponin that was an automatic ccu admission now that patient we call cardiology cardiology says well you know why don't you get another troponin <laughs> and if it's if if the second troponin in a few hours is rising then we'll admit them if the second troponin is not rising, just admit them to medicine and we'll see them. And, and I think that practice is prevalent everywhere, and it's going to become even more common once these super highly sensitive troponins get routinely introduced.
2: All right. The warning has been given. This is on its way.
1: Yeah. The next point... Uh, that I commonly see is this failure to consult cardiology, failure to activate the cath lab for certain non-STEMI type of conditions. And while I think everybody knows that if somebody has a STEMI or a posterior STEMI or one one of the STEMI equivalents, like a, a left bundle branch block pattern with Scarbosa criteria, you go ahead and activate the cath lab. But what has been missed over the years, and what I think a lot of people have not picked up on, is that the ACC AHA guidelines for at least 10 years have said that there are certain times when even the non-ST elevation ACS patient needs to get emergent cath lab activation and cardiology consultation, specifically, If you have a non ST elevation ACS patient with intractable ischemia, so let's say you've got a patient with a good story and they have some ST depressions and clearly this is acute coronary syndrome, you're giving them the aspirin and the beta blockers and the heparin and the clopidogrel and whatever else you normally do, and even high dose nitrates, you can't get rid of the pain and ischemic findings. That's a patient for whom cath lab activation is indicated. That's a class 1A indication for cath lab activation. And they specifically say that cath lab activation should be done within the first two hours in the national guidelines. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. There's this mental block that, that many of us have that STEMI equals cath lab, non-STEMI equals no cath lab. That's not exactly true. If you have a non-STEMI but you can't get their ischemia resolved with your medicines, you need to consult cardiology, take them to the cath lab. Um, The guidelines also say as class 1A, you should activate the cath lab for non-STEMIs if your patient is developing acute heart failure. So let's say the patient comes in, they've got a good story, they've got an ischemic-looking EKG, and over the next hour or so, they're starting to develop heart failure They're decompensating. That patient needs to go for cath. And delays in cath, uh, cardiology consultation, and and cath lab activation, uh, are would probably be considered below the guidelines, below the standard of care. And then the third non-stemi indication for cath lab activation is if your non-stemi patient has you know persistent symptoms and they start having ventricular arrhythmias. For example, intermittent runs of VTAC. That's the patient's heart trying to tell you, send me to cath, send me to cath. Um, you've got to send that patient to cath. So there are a few times where your non-STEMI patient needs to get emergent cardiology consultation and cath lab activation also. And I, I've, I've seen some of those cases brought up and they just pulled the national guidelines and say, here it is, class 1A. Why did you wait six or seven hours to consult cardiology Why'd you wait this long to activate the cath lab? The patient's developing heart failure. The patient's got worsening ischemia and so on. So please remember there are some times when your non-STEMI patient does need emergent consultation. It's not just the STEMI patient that needs emergent consultation and cath lab activation.
0: Good point. Good to know because there is this literature that is basically – suggesting that there is really no value or no uh, of consequence in the, the standard and patient to, to go to um, the cath lab when they compare it with aggressive medical treatment.
1: Yeah, and and of course, if the patient's already bumping their troponin and they have ischemia on the 12-ADCG, that would be a, a good time to call cardiology also instead of sitting on that patient. Even if you don't activate the cath lab, get cardiology involved uh, as quickly as possible if you have major concerns and certainly if the troponin's elevated. And and that leads to the next point, which is failure to document conversations with consultants. Uh, and, and that can include cardiology or the admitting docs. And I'll, I'll let the both of you go off on that because you've talked about that uh, a number of times before. <laughs> yeah, so.
2: consultants lie. Let's just, <laughs> they, they lie. You know, I always love it when they say, if they'd only told me this, I'd have come right in. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you send the EKG to the consultant, make sure you document that. Please document who you spoke with. I saw one case, and, and I think the um, the attorney that you had as a guest from down in Texas that I had worked with talked about a case where there was confusion about which cardiologist got consulted. Uh, the name had not been documented, and it turned out that they, I think they wrote the wrong name on the chart, and then when they, when the plaintiff side went after that cardiologist, it turned out it was the wrong cardiologist, and so by the time they found the right cardiologist, he had been, uh, it was beyond the statute of limitations, so they weren't able to pull the correct cardiologist into the case. So document the person that you speak with, document the time that you spoke with them, document the conversation, Are they coming in? I've seen questions about that. Cardiology says, I never said I was coming in. The emergency physician says, yeah, you said you were coming in. It's not documented. If they're going to be coming in, document when they're coming in. Are they coming in tomorrow morning? Are they coming in tonight? What do you want? Do you want them to come in tonight? Document that. And um, also, I think it's useful to document at what time care of the patient was transferred to the cardiologist or to the uh, hospitalist or whoever is admitting the physician.
2: You're re- you're preaching to the choir here. You realize, Amel, that uh, and it doesn't matter what specialty it is, whether it's orthopedics, general surgery, uh, make it explicit, not implicit, so that when we actually have to defend something, we got
1: we got something written on
2: that piece of paper.
1: Yeah. In our emergency department, we actually have uh, recordings of all the phone calls, and, and I think it, it's it's a great risk management um, tool, I guess. It also clearly improves professionalism that occurs on the phone calls. If you call our emergency department, you get a recording that says that you are about to be recorded, and then – you speak with the person. And, and I think if people out there can incorporate that into their practice, uh, I think it's a fantastic thing to do. It, it had to go through, I think, probably the medical executive committee and all these other committees, but we've had recorded phone calls in our emergency department for quite a few years. And, and any time there's any question about who said what, we can just pull up the recording and get right to the bottom of what actually happened.
0: How long are those uh, phone records uh, kept?
1: Uh, you no. know, I don't know for sure. I would imagine for probably at least a week or so. They're not. They're certainly not kept indefinitely. But or if the, th-
0: the seven years that um, <laughs> uh, to the statute of limitations, the the IRS.
1: Yeah. It's,
2: yeah. Uh, yes. Exactly. It's either the IRS or or the uh, local court system, but uh, yeah, they don't keep them that long, Rick. Um, you know, we we were recording all trauma calls, all this, all that. And, uh, that suit that, that went down very quickly because just the maintenance of this stuff was becoming significant.
0: Well, the reason I ask is because if in fact there are some, um, potential medical legal, uh, issues here about who was spoken with, um, these, if the calls are recorded only for several weeks and then they go, it's unlikely that they will be there for available um, when um, it it does need to be determined who uh, was speaking to who at what time because now there's a case uh, coming up. Yeah, that, so, no, so I'm not that, sure why why the uh, period is so short. If in fact one of the reasons is to um, defend practice or to clarify. Uh, who said what to who?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's true. Most of the time, if you know that there is a problem that's going to occur, then you can just flag um, risk management, and they'll they'll keep the recordings for longer. Uh, so, if, if there's a bad outcome or if there's an argument that occurs over the phone, then then those will more likely be flagged or, and saved.
0: Or when certain doctors are making the calls, they routinely uh, <laughs> keep their calls for an indefinite period of time. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> high, these
1: high-risk physicians. High risk. Yeah. Yeah. So the last point that I wanted to bring up had to do with discharge. And uh, obviously, a lot of these malpractice cases occur on patients that are discharged. Uh, and it always has to be very vague about which patients you can discharge. Well, now we have some very nice, well-validated rapid rule-out protocols. For example, the Heart score or the ADAPT score. And I have seen those scores used in malpractice cases very, very successfully, uh, whereby cases are actually dropped when you submit literature showing that these are internationally validated rapid rule-out protocols. They are discussed in the JAMA papers, in the New England Journal papers, and in the ACC and HA guidelines. So they're everywhere, very well accepted. And I think if you're going to discharge someone who you had some concern about acute coronary syndrome, but you did uh, a troponin, anything more than a troponin, I think you have to use a validated rapid rule out protocol. And I specify the word validated. There are a lot of rapid rule out protocols that have been created, and only a few of them have actually been validated. The heart score and adapt score probably being the most popular. Uh, they're, They're pretty easy to follow. You can just pull them up in your md calc or off the internet and follow those we have a nice validated rapid rollout protocol at our university that incorporates some uh, shared decision making signage by the patient and uh the hospital attorneys love it and i think it is very medical legally protected protective to use one of these type of things and then the The second part of that is that anyone in whom you're going to discharge, you make sure that they have a specific plan for follow-up. Another thing that you both have talked about before, when you discharge people, you make sure that it's time and case-specific. So you don't just say, follow-up, if worse. (laughs) Uh, Death is worse. (laughs) Um, So tell them exactly when and where they need to follow up. If they don't have a doctor, try to set up something for them. Um, so make sure that they have good instructions when they go. One comment that's been made about the heart
2: score is, and and we did, this was one of the talks in the uh, abstracts course, I think, in the last two years. And pretty much everybody does it anyway, Amal. When you think about the elements in the heart score, that's what you've got to go on. and Whether you come up with a number, whether you do this or that, I think what's helpful is in your discharge instruction, you talked about shared decision making and if you use the term heart score, uh, at least people know that you have been thinking about it, but in reality, the heart score is just common sense in my opinion. it's it's what we all do every time anyhow.
1: It is it is common sense. if you if you use the heart score, or one of these other validated, Uh, tools, I think it it forces you to think a little bit more about the patient. And every now and then, when you think a little bit more, you realize that maybe the patient is higher risk than you originally thought. Exactly. Um, Amal, can you help uh, with some clarification for me Uh, on the
0: patients who uh, are going to be discharged? Say, for example, they had no bump in troponin, their EKGs, their serial EKGs were uh, okay, uh this person still requires some kind of follow up would th- would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I think everybody needs some type of follow up yeah uh
0: and the diagnosis that we may be looking for there is um new onset angina we didn't have any uh we this is the first time uh, but angina was there it didn't cause any leaks um and and uh so w- w- when we talk about ST elevation uh, MIs, you know, and missing those, I think that, that, you know, I could understand that failure to uh, interpret the EKG properly is is an issue there. And STEMIs, you know, that, you know, you're still getting troponin bumps and you you somehow are ignoring them. Uh, But most of those patients are going to get admitted to the hospital. The, it would seem that the mistakes that we make are the ones who go home, the ones who leave. Um, It it seems that once we get them in the hospital, it's kind of like we have other people to help us care for those patients. they got the experts are coming in, those kinds of things. So that going home is really the the dangerous part of all of this. And um, I guess one of the things I'd like to point out is that we shouldn't feel really great about somebody who we initially thought had a cardiac problem or could be, maybe, and these tests that we did were negative, and that doesn't exclude, you know, you know this third diagnosis, which is uh, nuanced angina, uh, which is an important diagnosis to make. This per- it suggests that this person has significant coronary disease, which may have, need something done. So I do, you know, agree. Isn't there some kind of uh, recommendation by the Heart Association that this evaluation be done uh, promptly? Some, yes. Yes. We're talking about a time frame, and I don't think most people are kind of really aware of that of
1: how tight that time frame really is. Sure. So, uh, again, so we're talking about a person whose EKG is unremarkable, their troponin is fine, but you have concerns that they may have uh, essentially unstable angina, um, and, and there's various levels of risk in that patient with unstable angina. If the patient has, uh, say, a, let's go back to the heart score, or um, if the patient has a heart score of three or less, that probably represents a patient with unstable angina who's really, really low risk. And When
0: you say low risk, you mean for a major adverse cardiac event within 30 days? Within yeah. 30 Correct. days, right. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, 30 days is like nothing. It's like, <clears> um, I w- I am, I'm surprised, actually, that that is considered to be the window where it's it's okay because what about I'm I'm I I think that maybe we should be grateful that this person showed up because maybe they're going to have a problem in 3 months, 6 months, 9 months and and we hit the um, and we got a, a a message here that I that, that that something's not right. So I wouldn't I don't get a lot of solace out of well, nothing bad's going to happen within a month. That that doesn't help me in terms of, well, does this person have coronary artery disease that needs to be
1: addressed? Sure. So I I agree with uh, what I think you're saying is that these patients still need to get a workup. And then the question is, how quickly should we get the workup? The previous guidelines had said that if you're going to discharge somebody that you think is, quote, unquote, low risk, that they should get their provocative test or their their coronary CTA within 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the problem that's come up everywhere around the country, probably around the world also, is that we work in systems where we just can't get these provocative tests or coronary CTAs within 72 hours in the majority of patients. Maybe if you work in, um, I, I don't know, Kaiser system or something like that, You might be able to, but for most of us, we just can't get these tests done within 72 hours. So is there a way of saying that uh, this patient is low enough risk that maybe they can wait a little bit longer than 72 hours? Maybe they can wait a week uh, or longer. And that's where these validated rapid rule out protocols come in, the heart score, adapt score, because they say they would indicate that this patient has a very low risk, meaning less than 1% risk of major adverse event in 30 days. So that's not that's not in any way washing your hands to the patient. That's simply saying, you know what, if they can't get this test in 72 hours, that's probably fine. Uh, we can get the test and get them further risk stratified a little bit after that. So in our system, in our University of Maryland network, which is 14 hospitals around the state, the protocol that we have is to use the heart score. And if the patient is low enough on the heart score to be discharged, then we, as our protocol, require the patient to follow up for further risk stratification in a week. So 72 hours is just not doable. Probably a week is doable for the vast majority of these patients in our system. So they do still get their follow-up. They get seen by a primary care doc or oftentimes a cardiologist in a week or so, and then they can get further risk stratification at that point. When you say
0: further risk stratification, I often wonder, what what does that mean? I mean, is it a matter of uh, talking to the patients? Is it a matter of doing another EKG where we know the sensitivity is really low, or does it really mean... That all of those patients who are going to be referred are going to get something more definitive, like a stress uh, myocardial perfusion uh, test or some other test that is viewed to be a little bit more uh, objective, other than just um, let me talk to you about uh, what's going on now. Don't you think that that's really what's implied when we talk about follow-up, or maybe I'm am I overreading this?
1: No, I, I think a lot of those patients will get some further imaging, provocative test type of imaging done, but sometimes the further risk stratification is just somebody who has a lot more time than we do in the emergency department, a lot more access to records, able to delve a lot more into their family history, past history, and so on, and they they can simply get more information to, as we say, risk stratify that patient as to how much risk they have for coronary disease. And there's nothing magical that they do that we can't do, except for the fact that they have more time and they have more access to records than we do.
2: It sounds to me like what Amol is doing is just acknowledging the fact that at this moment in time, we can't see everybody within the 72 hours. Isn't that right, Amal? I yes. Mean, I mean, in an ideal world, Rick is right. The, the only thing of importance, you mean taking more family history, this and that, I don't think that means diddly squat. If for me, the patient in front of you, it's yes or no. So if you want to answer that question that, and you think they need another study, then we need to move them to the other study. Now, the, we can debate what that study should be. I mean, should they go to the cath lab? Should they just get uh, some sort of radionucleotide that we can look at? None of which is uh, none of those are a hundred percent, but it moves us closer to where we want to be.
0: Well, know? we'll never get a hundred percent, and we know all about the mistakes of trying to go to a hundred percent in terms of all of the false negatives and all of the downstream uh, problems that are going to result from that. However. Uh, My concern is these people uh, were thought to have potentially cardiac problems. They got the EKG, they got troponins, which basically says to the world, I was concerned that this may be some cardiac problem. Uh, They were okay. We also know that those being okay does not rule out new onset or unstable angina. And and even if the patient is low risk, we also know that, you know, the... The 30-day risk of a serious outcome, uh, that risk being very very low, does not suggest that this patient does not have coronary artery disease, uh, and 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 so I really am asking, and I uh, because I think that when you refer these people to some other doctor. That that other doctor is not really honestly. I don't think I, I agree with Greg. I don't think talking to the patient is going to really say, "Okay, you you can, you can go home now." You were an ER patient. You would do what you did. Go in at two o'clock in the morning. We just can't ignore that. So getting more conversation, I don't think is going to change anything. And I think that getting an old record honestly is not going to change anything. Uh, and so the question is, what's going to be done? And I think that this brings up the issue of. Well, uh, what is going to be done is it done routinely on on these patients, even though the risk is low because our tolerance for error here is very small, and um, it kind of brings up the uh, Peter Vichello point of view of saying, "Well, we do these CT coronary angiograms on a bajillion people now. his studies basically show that the vast vast majority of them had, you know, nothing, no collusions that were greater than seventy percent, but." It's kind of like uh, th- there's this there's this problem of what do we do with these patients uh, who w- are sent out um, with uh, very low risk? Uh, um, y- yes, we, we it, we're just deferring the problem to some other guy, uh, some other yeah.
1: person.
0: It's just some, you you, d- you deal with it now. <laughs>
1: Well, what's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, to you know, to some extent, I, I think it's a system problem, and and I, and I agree. I can't disagree with your comments. There is another issue that I need to throw in here that I I don't have an answer to. And that is if we use heart or adapt and we risk stratify someone to less than 1% risk in a month and then we send them out for further follow-up. Let's say that we go ahead and we do the provocative test in all of these patients. The studies show that if the risk of an adverse outcome is less than 2% and you use a highly sensitive test on a low-risk patient, you're going to end mm-hmm. up with more false positives Positive. and false negatives. And so maybe if the patient has less than 1% risk, we're actually doing more harm by doing provocative tests on all these patients. We're going to end up with more false positives, which leads to more interventions that are unnecessary and more risk and more harm. I don't have an answer to what we should do but I think there's a lot of people out there who would also say that if the risk is less than 1% at a month, maybe we're done with those patients. I'm not sure.
0: Yes. And I've heard that as I've heard that as well, but I, I come back to the question, well, doctor, what was wrong with me? Uh, What, what was, what was that? And, and you we're going to wind up saying, well, we don't think it was your heart. Uh, That's I think probably the best thing that you can say is we don't think it was your heart and and then the patient said, what do you mean you don't think it was your heart? You know, <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> well, as you Marty know. Samuels used to say, you can turn to the patient and say, we see that.
2: We see that occasionally.
0: I just find that these algorithms kind of uh, uh, dwindle when you actually really find out, well, what's going to happen when you send them out for referral? What What would be the logical progression of this. And you bring up the, a really good point about doing sensitive tests on low-risk low patients. Uh, I, I certainly understand that, but it doesn't respond to the patient's question, well, was it my heart or not, doctor? Um, so, I, and, 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 and let me extend that one bit. I looked at uh, one of the lectures we did uh, this year in the, te- uh, uh, in the course was uh, about choosing wisely, and uh, we looked at recommendations from other societies regarding things that apply to emergency medicine uh, or may apply. And one of the things that I found, and I need some help on this, I genuinely do, um, the uh, American Society of Nuclear Cardiology uh, said, don't perform cardiac imaging for patients who are at low risk. They say chest pain patients at low risk of cardiac death and myocardial infarction based on history, physical exam, EKG, and cardiac markers do not merit stress radionuclide radionuclide myocardial perfusion imaging or stress echo as an initial test strategy if they have a normal EKG um, uh, and are able to exercise. Uh, Amal, what does that mean? What does that mean? They say if you're able to exercise, great, but you don't need to have the uh, the re- nucleotides thrown in here or the uh, or the echo. What is – what is does that imply that they're saying just do a regular old stress
1: test in these people? Just a, a treadmill stress test? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I don't, I don't agree with it at all. Yeah. Right. Um, I think this, that we've gone well, – I think that we've come beyond – is treadmill stress testing. And we also know that the sensitivity of treadmill stress testing is not w- as good as we would accept.
0: Right. I, I, In response to developing that lecture, I found this chart looking at huge numbers of patients. Exercise uh, treadmill test, number of patients, 24,000. Sensitivity, 68%. Specificity, 77%. In our nuclear tests, um, we're talking about 88, 89, um, dobutamine 84 echo, stress. Echo is 85%. So it points out that they're better than certainly the plain stress test, but they're not, they are nowhere near a hundred percent, nowhere near 15%. Uh, uh, the cases you're going to miss. So it is still a muddled affair. Uh, if we limit it to what we do in the emergency department, I think we have kind of uh, I've, we're kind of uh, created a relatively safe environment using the hard score and um, the other score that you had mentioned. Uh, yeah. But this is still a kind of a tough problem for us because we want we want exactness. We're not willing
1: to have a two percent error rate. Well, I think we we can get down to under one percent and. I I think also that we as a society have to just come to the, come to accept that we cannot get to hundred percent. We can get pretty close to hundred percent. We can get to ninety nine point something percent, but we just have to accept that we're not going to get to zero. And if we continue to try to get to zero, we may end up doing more harm.
0: Well, you know, we're I think we're just about out of time, which is really it just flew by. Um, so I think we are at wine of the month time. We, we No cases, no articles, no nothing. Just you wine know, of the month. You know, Rick, I can't tell you how much I hate this.
2: Every time you and I discuss uh, what we're going to put in, you think, oh, we're going to run shorter material. We've never <laughs> run shorter <laughs> material in 10 years. And I don't get adequate time for wine of the month. And well, listen, so, you know, Greg. Now, damn it. You're going to listen to this whether you want to or not. (laughs) Yeah, Okay, that's just it. So uh, anyway, for wine of the month, we're doing something different this month. I thought every year or so, I will do a trip down memory lane. So I'm going to give you a wine that we all drank when we were young. You get to guess the wine. Uh, But let me just tell you, if you're... If, if, no, it's not Chateau Lafitte. If, if you're our age, that means you and me, Rick, not kids like Amal. But um, uh, this wine, in all probability, taking into account both the Heisenberg uncertainty principle <laughs> and, and the Hawthorne effect, probably was your wine of choice. When you wanted to spend a little more money than Mad Dog 2020 or any Greensprings with a date, it comes in a flask-shaped bottle with a long neck. Next clue, it was 40% of Portugal's wine output in the 1960s. Name the wine, either one of you.
1: I have no idea.
2: Well, well I can't do it, man. Can't do it. Let me just tell you, it was Matus. And for those of you who still remember, I'd really like to hear from some of our listeners, but Matus was important when we were young. You you drank it everywhere. Uh, it was that bottle could be recognized across the room. And, uh, and so last night, because I refuse to talk about wines I don't drink, I went to the store, got a bottle of Matus, I took it home, put it on the table with my, uh, where my wife was sitting, and she said, you know, we haven't had that for like 50 years, Gra- I mean, we met 52 years ago. She said, but that was our go-to wine at that point in time, so I poured a glass for each of it, and it has almost a little fizzy quality. And she said, did we really think that was good at that time? (laughs) I said, we thought it was fabulous at that time. And uh, that was a big night out for us since we had no money. And uh, let me just tell all our listeners of a certain age, Matus is still being made. Uh, You can get it at a lot of wine shops. And uh, uh, here is a wine blast from the past. Uh, si- it was uh, $6.80 for the
1: bottle. So there you go. And that's M-A-T-E-U-S? Yes. All matus. right. So not related. Ma- it's not from my family then. No,
2: no, no, <laughs> no. No, 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 no. It's not Matu. It's Matu. <laughs> yeah. Just, just to show we have no conflict of interest. By the way, last thing before we go, for those of you who have not seen the May 2nd 2017 issue of JAMA they spent an entire issue talking about conflict of interest I've never seen anything like this since I've been in medicine get a copy of this and read it because it really does I I mean this uh journal is a vindication for Jerry Hoffman I'm just telling you This shows all the potential conflicts of interest there are in medicine and how complicated this actual question is. You know, whenever a society or group puts out guidelines, it's got to be something that makes it better for their group or society. And um, this is a very interesting publication. I'd get it and take a look at it, folks.
0: Um, One other thing, if you're going to mention guidelines, uh, I'm a... couple of times mentioned uh, heart association, and this is what they say, uh, but we have to remind people that what they say and standard of care are uh, two different things, and uh, sometimes, as Almost suggested, a 72-hour uh, time frame for doing uh, the evaluation of chest pain patients after being discharged is impractical. And the fact of the matter is, is that the guideline did say that. And there are other things that they say to do that, in fact, are not standard of care. And we need to make uh, it clear to everyone. And I think those people who have been listening for a while certainly know that. So if somebody's going to come up and wave in front of you the AHA guidelines and that you didn't uh, uh, adhere to them, I think that uh, the, you fall back on, is that the standard of care? And in the, in the and many, many times that will not be the standard of care. All
2: okay. right, Rick, how's our time going here? Since We're out to of say time, goodbye? Chief. Yeah, this is it. All right, so this is Greg and Rick and our wonderful guest, and he was fabulous this month. Amal Matu saying uh, so long for the month of August.
1: Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye. <laughs>